0: Aldous Huxley, you know, noted atheist, best known for his book, A Brave New World. Huxley made this observation back in 1931. He said, most of one's life, most of life is one prolonged effort to prevent thinking. You know, he said that 80 years ago. And uh, I'd contend it's even more true today than it was 80 years ago, largely because of our phones. Um. We dropped Hannah off at the University of Southern Mississippi this past week, several thousand miles away, and as you walk around the airport, we flew into Atlanta and then drove over to Hattiesburg, Mississippi. You walk around the airport, everybody's on their phones. You walk around the college campus, everybody's on their phones. One, One of the casualties of our digital age has been the loss of the contemplative life, the loss of a life that thinks deeply about and around and through things. The loss of stillness. I mean, as soon as we have even the least bit of aloneness, we habitually pull out our phones. And, and I'm as guilty as the next guy. And the loss of silence. You know, there's no silence. The radio is always on in our cars. The Muzak plays in the elevator. You know, beats by Dre cover our ears and shield us from the natural sounds of the surrounding world. Even when we're in a group of people, A group of other people. We may not even be talking with them because we're we're that glued to our digital devices. And I think you would agree, wouldn't you, that all of that inhibits our ability to think deeply. Uh, In comes Psalm 119, our passage this morning. Psalm 119, it's the last of our summer psalm series. Next week we're going to turn to the book of James. James. 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, you may know that. Um, It's an acrostic poem. Each of the stanzas are are a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So verses 1 through 8, they all begin with the letter Aleph, the A in the Hebrew alphabet. Then 9 through 17 would begin with the B, or Beit. Gimel would be 17 through 20, 24. All the way down to our passage today, the Hei in verses 33 through 40, and the Vav in verses 41 through 48. Here are a few noteworthy characteristics of Psalm 119 as we get started. First off, in pretty much every verse of this psalm, the psalmist makes some reference to God's word. He does so by using eight terms, all of which kind of mean the same thing. They're all synonymous but with different shades of meaning, he calls God's word, his, his laws, his testimonies, his precepts, his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his promises. God has decided to disclose himself to us through the medium of human communication. I know that it's fashionable for some people to say, well, we, we can't confine God within the bounds of human language. God's much bigger than that. We shouldn't put God in a box. He's much more mysterious than that. Well, he's chosen to to reveal himself to us through this medium. Second, the second noteworthy characteristic is the psalmist who writes this. He's lovesick. The man is absolutely smitten for God's word. And he talks about the scriptures. The whole psalm is basically one love poem that he writes about how much he, he loves God's word. And so he speaks in these terms of panting for God's word. I mean, when was the last time you did that? Panting, um, longing, weeping streams of tears. If you've ever looked back at one of the love poems that you wrote earlier in your life, you pull it out and you, you start to read what a terrible poet you are. <laughs> It's very cringy, not, not merely because you're a bad poet, but because of just this unbridled enthusiasm and affection you had for a person, and the relationship never worked out. Well, this guy has that kind of unbridled enthusiasm and affection towards statutes. Like who, who would possibly feel that way about commandments? And yet he does. Verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my ear to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts in your righteousness. Give me life. Then we come to the Vav section. Look, God is not merely interested in functionality. He could have given us a very dry academic owner's manual as the way he chose to reveal himself. He could have written this mechanistically, but God is a God of beauty who loves art. And he has written to us this artful, poetic work that comes It comes down to us. Verse 41, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I shall have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments. The lifting up of his hands is a sign of worship and adoration. I lift up my hands toward your commandments of all things, which I love. And I will meditate on your statutes. Highly recommend a book to you, a little paper book I have in my hand. It is written by Kevin DeYoung. It's entitled "Taking God at His Word: What the Bible—so uh, why the Bible—is knowable, necessary, and enough—and what that means for you and me." Very simple, hundred and like ten-page introduction to uh, a theological... Theological understanding of Scripture and and why we should have a high degree of confidence in Scripture. Highly recommend it to you. He breaks things down. He says there's three essential irreducible characteristics about God's Word. And I have three similar but different characteristics I want to give to you this morning. They're very simple, um, but hopefully they'll be helpful. Number one, God's Word says what is freeing. According to verse 45... God's word leads us into freedom. So look with me. Why don't we read it together out loud? Verse 45. Flip there. Let's read it. Verse. And I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. So the way this metaphor works, the wide place is a metaphor for freedom. We have in our church a number of fairly serious mountain climbers. Um, They're not professional grade, but yeah, they're pretty good. Matt Henderson is Matt here today. Um, John Brosa, he's done Mount Hood uh, a couple of times. Nathan Bernal is a pretty good climber. If you follow these these guys on Facebook, from time to time, you will see pictures, stunning pictures taken from the top of Mount Bora or from high up in the uh, Sawtooths where they, you know, kind of, video chronicle the places that they have walked. Climbing a mountain oftentimes requires you to walk along a narrow road, a narrow place. On your left may be a giant boulder field, and on your right may be a thousand-foot drop. Where are you going to walk in that case? You're in a narrow spot, and there's no choice because there's no other place. It's only when you finally get up into one of those marvelous Idahoan high mountain uh, pastures or fields. It's only then in the broad place that you're, you have choices in essence. You have the choice to follow the stream through the meadow or walk along the edges of the, the high mountain lake. Notice the ironic twist here. The, the psalmist says that your laws, your, your commandments, are what provide for me the context of the broad place. Your binding rules for my life are actually the the tool that leads me into the the high meadow, um, which is radically different, of course, than what you hear today. Freedom, freedom as is popularly conceived of these days, freedom is understood to be entirely without any constraints except for those that you impose upon yourself. Freedom is I and I alone can judge what is right for me and wrong for me, and I am not subject to any constraints placed on me by any outside authority or anyone other than myself. In fact, we go so far, people would go so far to say, as the only way for me to live a truly satisfying life is to have that completely uninhibited freedom. Here's an illustration that I've heard used uh, that contradicts that. Think of a hang glider. Have you ever seen, we've all seen a hang glider up in the sky before. A hang glider is a quintessential picture of freedom. It seems to fly so uninhibitedly and so effortlessly up in the sky. Why is the glider able to soar like this? I got the illustration from Tim Keller. He says, the reason a glider is able to soar is not because of unrestricted freedom, but because it was created to follow aerodynamic realities. It was designed to to follow the the currents of the air. You go and try to put a a glider underwater and it'll just sink. It's not because of lack of restrictions that it can soar. It's because it's operating in the environment for which it was built. And it's found the right restrictions... The restrictions that fit its being. Another way to illustrate this, it's like walking into your uh, your child's room, Johnny or Sally. You you ask them, "So how do you like your new pet goldfish, Johnny or Sally?" And Sally replies to you, and "You say, 'Oh, Mom, I, I I love them. They were just swimming around so well. They were they were frolicking in the water, and now they're not moving anymore. They just lie there on the rug." <laughs> Yeah, but wasn't the fish supposed to experience freedom when he finally got out of that narrow, confining little aquarium? Right? If only, didn't the fish say, if only I could, if only I could be liberated and sit on the sofa with Sally or, or join the other fishes on the rug, I'd love to sit by them. No, it's... See, the child has taken it out of the environment for which it was built, and in doing so, it completely loses its freedom. As I said, almost every American thinks that I and I alone can judge what is right and wrong for, for me. Um, but no, that's not how the physical world works. Why, would, why should we expect the moral and human world to operate by an entirely different set of, um, you know, of rules? I will never know the freedom of playing the piano like Susie or Nancy or Michiko and the reason uh, is because I, I have never confined myself to the, uh, to the rules of music. I mean, if a child comes up and starts banging indiscriminately on the piano keys, that's not, how, that's not how music works. There are laws which govern music. There are fingerings and key signatures and chord progressions and hundreds and hundreds of hours that you have to spend being confined in order that you might play uninhibitedly, fantastically, and beautifully. Only if you do that, submit to the rule, with time you learn how to play uh, in the broad place. That's the first point. Secondly, God's word says what is true. And because it is true, it is therefore authoritative and trustworthy. There are not many things that you and I would consider trustworthy in this world. We know that we can't trust what we read on the internet, at least everything we read on the internet. We can't trust everything we hear from our professors. We certainly can't trust all of the facts and statistics that are given to us by our politicians. We know that statistics can lie and be manipulated. We know that photographs can be photoshopped magazine covers can be airbrushed. But according to the psalmist, he says, God's word, the image that he uses elsewhere is God's word is fixed in the heavens. In other words, it is immovable, immutable. He says there is no limit to its perfection. It is true. It can be trusted. Those of you who are here this morning, maybe you're not a Christian. You wonder, why would why would any modern person have that degree of confidence in such an ancient book? And that's a good question. Um, I'll give you part, a partial answer to that question. For most of us, the way our spiritual journey went, we didn't start out the Christian life uh, doing this deep research project into, oh, the archaeological discoveries in the ancient Near East and how... Closely, or, or they correlate to ancient or the Old Testament narratives of historical events. I and mean, we didn't like, do a research project. We didn't jump through all the hoops and figure out all the Bible difficulties, and there are some. What we did is we became convinced that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah, and we decided that we wished to be his disciples. Only after that did our view of the, the Bible really get shaped as we discovered. What was his view of the Bible? There's a place in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus, he says these words. He says, Do not think that I've come to loosen the law of the prophets. He says, I'm not going to relax, and the word he uses next, I'm not going to relax any jot or tittle. So a jot was, I guess, the smallest maybe vowel in the Hebrew alphabet, and then a tittle was just kind of a mark of a letter It would be similar to what we do when we put a point on the top of a lowercase i. And Jesus says, here we're saying, don't you dare think that there is a letter or even part of a letter of anything in the law of the prophets that you can ignore. He says, every single part of the Bible, all of the words of the Bible are all binding on you. They are absolutely authoritative and true. That's very kingly language. Those are the words of a king. One of the great problems in many churches and schools today is they have drifted away from the authority of the Bible. And in so doing, they have departed from Jesus' view of the Bible. Rather than allowing the the Bible to sort of stand back and critique us and be the judge of us, as is the right of a king, Instead, we stand as judge of the Bible. We determine what parts of the Bible are true and useful and which parts are abrogated and antiquated. um, I read one such school who wrote the following. They said, Americans read the Bible as a manifesto of a God who has a lot of laws and an inclination to punish those who don't follow those laws. But we must latch on instead to the idea that the Bible is not rules and proof text, but we must start to read the Bible as a story and a conversation. Well, that's a false dichotomy. Of course, it's a wonderful story and conversation. It's a story of redemption, how God takes an enslaved people and leads them into a land that is not their own and does so under the blood of the of the Passover lamb. Yes, it's a magnificent story of grace, but it's also an authoritative moral compass. Mechanically, Escape the fact that the psalmist calls it laws and rules and commandments. When well, somebody says uh, they're just parts of the Bible, I can't accept parts of the Bible. I just I, I won't accept. Well, what parts? I'm assuming you're talking about its views on human sexuality. Is that the part? Is it is it the forgiveness that we are required to give to our enemies? You're not supposed to forgive your enemy seven times, but seventy times seven. Uh, is it the Bible's conditions on economic generosity and how that... If you say that there are parts that I just can't accept, well, you're standing as judge over it. And I guess the question I would pose back to you is, why do you believe that you're qualified to be the judge? Okay, I'm going to probably get myself in trouble here. but <laughs> How aware are you of the fact that what many people accept today is true about human sexuality and gender, 20 years ago would have been considered moral hogwash. How aware are you of the fact that even one presidency ago, what the majority of people are now saying about human gender, would have thought that is absolutely nuts. Well, but that's where the cultural winds have been blowing. And you're following the wind. Why, why would you have such a degree of confidence in your own moral judgment when, admittedly, you, you've, just, you've adopted such a huge turn as to what it means to be human in the course of 10 years? I'll, I'll give you another uh, challenge, and that is go read The Merchant of Venice. Go read Shakespeare. What you will find when you read The Merchant of Venice is... Shakespeare was was radically anti-Semitic. He, he, was, he, was, he hated Jews. And do you know why? It wasn't because it, that was taught in the Bible. It was because he was following the zeitgeist of his time, which that's where the, that's where the winds of culture were blowing. He was anti-Semite because that's where the prevailing cultural winds were headed. You know, read the writings of our founding fathers. Where was the, where were the, where was the wind blowing then? Most of, them, most of them were racist. Now, Lincoln, he emancipated the slaves, and yet Lincoln didn't believe in the complete equality of black and white. But the point is, if these guys who are titanic in their intellect, if they weren't able to rise above the spirit of their age, what makes you think that you will? Why do you think that, that you will be able to, to avoid the moral blind spots? See, that's what's so magnificent about Scripture is Scripture comes to us as a moral compass outside of our, our own culture, outside of our millennium, a rule that has sufficient distance from our own cultural moment that is able to critique our cultural moment, not being subject to all of the biases of our cultural moment, which all of the blind spots, which by, by definition we cannot see. I'll say one more thing about this. When you listen to people give moral judgments today, they are dogmatic in their positions. On all sides of the issues, people are, are, are certainly, they are, they are very dogmatic. Do this. Listen to somebody who's passionate about any moral issue and find out, and listen carefully, do they have any philosophical moral argument, or are they, and this is what they're doing, are they just arguing from their own personal experiences and their own emotional state? Because what I hear in the the discourse in America today is nothing more than, than emotivism and hysteria. I'm probably getting in trouble for all of that. But Jesus says, God's word provides what is true, authoritative and trustworthy. It comes to us again outside of our cultural moment and thereby has the ability to fairly critique our cultural moment. Ah, finally, thirdly. God's word is to to be meditated on and cherished. How should I feel towards God's word? When I read Psalm 119, I know that I don't feel the way that the psalmist feels, I'm not lovesick for God's word. And it's because we have a, a defective view of what the, the word actually is. So in the New Testament, it teaches that Jesus Christ is, he is the word made flesh. What does that mean? It means, among other things, that all of the attributes of God's word are found and seen in Jesus. So here's my contention What we feel and think about Jesus, the word made flesh, is what we should think and feel about the word that has been inscribed, the written word. The passionate love that you and I hopefully feel towards Jesus Christ should be equal to, equally reflected in our love for God's written word. It's not. The stats say that 45% Of all people who regularly attend church, uh, only 45% of them read their Bible a week. Or another way to put it, for each church attender who does read their Bible every day, there's someone else who doesn't read it at all. Another way to put it, if a burglar snuck into your home tonight and he stole away every single copy you have of the Bible, for half of us in the room here today, that wouldn't affect Monday through Saturday. Because we're not reading it to begin with. But if somebody stole your phone, would that have an effect on you Monday through Saturday? If somebody hacked your Instagram account, I want to turn to verse 37. We'll read it, and I'm I'm almost done. Let's read verse 37 aloud because it is a very powerful verse. Read it. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Oh. Turn my eyes not only from looking at profane things. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Take my eyes off of things that have no value. You hear people say from time to time that we're creatures of our environment. But psychologists know better. They tell us that we're not simply creatures of our environment. We are creatures shaped by the selective input we choose to focus on in our environment and there are a million possible things that that are going on around us at any given moment but we really only see and and take in just a couple of them I mean presumably what you are choosing to take in right now is this sentence that I am speaking to you I mean everything else in some respect is 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 drowned out um We selectively focus on the things that interest us and that delight us. And unfortunately, those are all too often worthless, vapid, and useless things. As the psalmist says, Turn my eyes, my focus, away from worthless things and give me life in your ways. If you've never really taken a shot at reading the Bible um, regularly... Take a shot. <laughs> there's, there's tremendous life in his word. I, there are lots of different good Bible reading programs out there. You get any Bible app. I don't like the title of it, but Version is a decent Bible app. Um, there's plans there. If you go on to the, the English Standard Version website, they have lots of different reading plans there. Tim Keller has a great book on daily meditations and the Psalms. Uh, Francis Chan has a podcast where he does readings for the day and then it does some great commentary on the day. There are a lot, as one Baptist church planner in Charlotte told this congregation, there are plenty of good options out there. The plan you choose really isn't the point. It matters less how you're reading through the Bible and more that you're actually doing it. Seriously, why do pastors always harp about daily Bible reading? Why is that the subject of so many sermons? You just got the answer in verse 37 because they're There is life in his ways. You don't see it. Jesus, the word made flesh, and the word that you have in your hands, those things are not two way different. No, the the life-sustaining, universe-sustaining power found in Jesus Christ is also the power that is found in his word. He gives you life for his for, in his word. Scripture is not merely God-breathed in its inspiration. It is God-breathing to you life. And I'm preaching to myself as much because I neglect it way too often. Christ wants to give us in his word his joy, his strength, his safety, his hope, a story, an identity, and it's all in contrast to the worthless, worthless things. The worthless things are are the ones which make us slaves. I'll repeat that. It's the worthless things that you're focusing in your life right now that make you a slave. So for those of us who have tried to build a daily habit of Bible, meditating and reading, um, and we've fallen off the horse, here's how you get back again, and I'll conclude the sermon right here. First, how to get back on the horse? Pray that God would give you a heart for the Bible again. According to Matthew 7, verse 7, that if you're seeking his truth, he will answer you. Pray that he would give you this kind of lovesick affection for his word. And then secondly, talk to somebody or listen to somebody that has this kind of affection for God's word. Oftentimes, that is the catalyst to help us delight in the word again, is have somebody else that is this passionate. I mean, it's like if you have a workout partner who's... Really into it. You need, you need their passion to kind of pull you along. Find somebody who, uh, who can do that. If you've never had a picture of someone who loves God's word in your life, you don't know how it can transform your life and bring joy to the core of your being. So find that person. Don't put it off. One of the most precious gifts I can give to you, you could give to another person, is to love the Lord Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, and to love his word, and to think about both of them very, very deeply.